Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. On November 9th, the warring parties in Nagorno-Karabakh signed a ceasefire agreement brokered by Russia. The agreement comes after weeks of heavy fighting between Azerbaijan and Armenia, which killed thousands of people. Nagorno-Karabakh is an enclave of mostly ethnic Armenians, but in territory internationally recognized as Azerbaijan. In the early 1990s, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, Armenia and Azerbaijan fought a major war which resulted in the de facto control of Nagorno-Karabakh by ethnic Armenians who were backed by the Armenian government. That status quo was shattered when Azerbaijan launched a successful military campaign several weeks ago. With troops nearing the regional capital, Armenia felt compelled to enter into a ceasefire agreement drafted by Russia, which has friendly relations with both countries. This agreement more or less solidifies Azerbaijan's military gains and calls for Russian troops to patrol the region. On the line with me to discuss these recent events is Anna Zamet, a freelance journalist who has covered this region for years. We spend the first few minutes at the start of the conversation discussing the recent history of Nagorno-Karabakh before having a longer conversation about the regional and international implications of this ceasefire agreement. You will definitely learn a lot from this conversation. I know I did. A big thank you to Anna Zamet, who, like me, is a senior fellow with Humanity in Action, and I always love speaking to alums of this great organization. And one quick note before we start, this December 7th to 9th, join a global group of doers in taking on the planet's biggest challenges and shaping what comes next. PeaceCon is a unique global gathering of peacebuilders, policymakers, activists, and philanthropists hosted by the Alliance for Peacebuilding. PeaceCon 2020 will convene participants to address the shifting world order and how to best take on global fragility, violent extremism, systemic racism, exclusion, and climate disruption, among other issues. PeaceCon will also consider strategies to elevate and integrate peacebuilding in collective efforts to shape a more just, secure, and peaceful future in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Confirmed speakers include the McCain Institute's Ambassador Mark Green, Ford Foundation President Darren Walker, Time's Up CEO Tina Chen, Dr. John Paul Lederach, Congresswoman Grace Meng, and many more. Visit allianceforpeacebuilding.org slash peacecon-2020 to learn more about PeaceCon 2020 taking place virtually from December 7 to 9 and register today. And now here is my conversation with freelance journalist Anna Zamet. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? 
Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. On September 27, uh, 2020, in early morning, actually Azerbaijan uh, started a massive uh, military operation aimed uh, to basically restore access uh, to its lands. Let's maybe start from the very beginning, because the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict for years has been, in a way, one of the most forgotten hot uh, or at, at some point not hot conflicts in the world before it actually made headlines internationally. In fact, it's one of also the oldest uh, conflicts at the crossroad of uh, Europe and Asia. Um, it started nearly 100 years ago, but I will spare you the whole history. Uh, what we need to know uh, for sure is that there was a war between Armenia and Azerbaijan uh, that started at in the, in the late 80s, that continued uh, until 1994. Um, the war started where Armenians uh, of Nagorno-Karabakh, which is a province in Azerbaijan, uh, started uh, voicing, basically, needs for independence. Uh, that was still before the Soviet Union uh, collapsed. It was uh, in the late 80s. And the province was, at the time, inhabited by the majority of ethnic Armenians. However, there were also uh, some Azeris. Uh, the proportions were around 70 to 30 percent. And um, basically, as the Soviet Union was slowly disintegrating and as Gorbachev uh, came to power with a policy of liberalization, uh, also this uh, long, in fact, um, very old animosities uh, started coming back to surface. Um, with the political claims, uh, you can imagine uh, a, a conflict actually started anew. So basically, uh, in fact, very small localized uh, fighting quickly snowballed into a full-scale war uh, that uh, saw its hottest phase in the beginning of the 90s. And, and it's worth perhaps emphasizing <laughs> that this was a profoundly deadly war. Tens of thousands of, of people were killed in this fighting in the early 90s. Exactly. Around 30,000, if I'm not mistaken, uh, were killed. Uh, and this was a war that uh, basically... Uh, lasted around six years. And uh, basically, in the beginning of the 90s, both countries regained independence. And there was a sort of also security gap in the region as the Soviet Union uh, collapsed in 1991. And there was no major power, in fact, to stop uh, the warring parties. However, um, it's also important to mention that unlike now, in the current war of 2020, Russia played a very active role in the beginning of the 90s in support of Armenia. And in fact, it helped to tip the victory in favor of Armenia uh, in the first Karabakh war in the beginning of the 90s. And it was also Russia in 1994 that brokered a ceasefire agreement, just like 26 years later. Um, however, the roles right now reversed because back then, uh, the, the major uh, victor 
in the war uh, was uh, Armenia. And Armenia actually took control not only of Nagorno-Karabakh, so the disputed region that uh, both Azerbaijan and Armenia consider central to their national identity, but also Armenia in that war in the beginning of the 90s with the ceasefire of 1994 took control uh, of the seven adjacent regions around Nagorno-Karabakh and kept them as some sort of a uh, a buffer zone. Essentially, the um, status quo uh, since the end of that conflict until September 2020 was one in which ethnic Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh, supported by Armenia, controlled much of the territory in what is internationally recognized to be Azerbaijan. And exactly. that, you know, th there had been conflicts uh, over the years, but essentially that was the basic status quo until late September this year. Do we know or do you have a sense of why Azerbaijan decided to mount this offensive in late September? Yes. Uh, well, well, first of all, um, we didn't mention that uh, over the, those 26 years, there have been actually attempts to resolve the conflict. Uh, in the beginning of the 90s, as the war was still going on uh, between Azerbaijan and Armenia, uh, the men's group was established uh, with three co-chairs, the United States, France and Russia. And they were tasked with finding a negotiated solution to the conflict. Um, of course, they were just mediators. Uh, they also couldn't impose anything on, on the two sides. However, uh, both Armenia and Azerbaijan throughout the years uh, have been putting a lot of blame on the men's group for not being able to uh, help them um, basically solve this conflict. And especially Azerbaijan, because let's say, uh, let's, let's look at the situation. Armenia emerged um, um, as, a, as a victor from the war of the 90s. So it was in control of the territories claimed by both sides. I mean, the Nagorno-Karabakh plus the seven adjacent territories. So for Armenia, actually, there was no urgency in resolving the Karabakh conflict. Actually, the longer the status quo lasted, the better uh, it would have been for uh, Armenia. However, Azerbaijan was getting increasingly frustrated with the lack of any kind of results in this uh, peace negotiations for uh, 26 years. And it was one of the reasons why it decided to resort to a military operation. Another reason is that Azerbaijan basically lost faith uh, in the peace process um, uh, with the coming to power of Nikol Pashinyan, uh, the new prime minister of um, Armenia in 2018. Uh, it's, it's very interesting because in the beginning, actually, there was a lot of hope, uh, especially on the side of Azerbaijan, that with Nikol Pashinyan, who was a Democrat, who came to power uh, through a revolution with a peace agenda promising to finally bring peace to the region, there was a lot of hope that there would be finally some breakthrough uh, in these negotiations. However, instead of uh, reasserting itself as, as, a, um, as an advocate for peace, uh, Nicole Pashinyan made a series of very, very bad provocative steps uh, that uh, Azerbaijan was increasingly angry with. Um, I will not maybe go into details, but it was, uh, it was attempt to uh, basically move the capital of, of Nagorno-Karabakh 
from Stepanakert to Shusha, which is considered the pearl also of Azerbaijani culture. It was an Azerbaijani majority city uh, before. So, so basically, the, the government of Azerbaijan uh, did not see prospects for a peaceful resolution of this. So it launched a military offensive. And it's fair to say uh, that this was, from the perspective of Azerbaijan, a rather wildly successful military intervention and offensive. Uh, and it was backed in these efforts by Turkey. Um, yes. Can you tell us about like, you know, how did the fighting proceed on the ground from September until uh, November 9, when the cessation of hostilities uh, agreement was, was reached? Uh, what happened on the ground? Absolutely. I will answer your question. I'll just would like to add one more thing that uh, I've left out from the conversation, which is extremely important. Because for Azerbaijan, you know, those 26 years, it wasn't just about the territory. Uh, it was about also the refugees, internally displaced persons that had to that were forced to flee uh, the region uh, in the beginning of the 90s and uh, in the end of the 80s. So we're talking about around uh, 750,000 people who lost their homes. So there was also increasingly a push from their side to uh, basically have Azerbaijan restore uh, these territories and opportunity for them to go back home. They've never forgotten. They've never forgotten that where their their home is. Uh, they always wanted to go back, uh, despite the fact that maybe this conflict has been largely forgotten by the entire world. Um, so this this also played a role, and there was increasingly a push from the side of the people to finally uh, bring uh, this situation to an end, to resolve it, and to restore uh, control over the territories. Sorry about this, but I I think it was it's important to mention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's one of those things um, where the right. domestic politics of uh, war yeah. are always like crucial to understanding, uh, you know, tactical decisions in, in, in this case. Uh, so now um, back to actually the military operation. Of course, Turkey played uh, here a major role for Azerbaijan, not necessarily in terms of the military support, uh, although here we also have to acknowledge that Azerbaijan bought uh, drone technologies uh, right before this operation started from Turkey. And that gave it a, a technological edge for sure in terms of its military capabilities. Uh, so basically, it was a very quick offensive. In fact, it only took six weeks uh, for Azerbaijan to really completely redraw uh, the line of contact and the map. And um, uh, basically, um, in the beginning, it was mentioned by many analysts that it would be a problem for the Azerbaijani army to uh, conquer uh, the, the the territories and to enter Nagorno-Karabakh proper, um, not only the adjacent regions, but also Nagorno-Karabakh, because it's an, it's an elevated uh, terrain. So basically, the Armenian forces, in a way, had an advantage because they were literally standing on the, on the, to uh, on the top of the hills. Um, uh, however, uh, it didn't help them at the end. And uh, Azerbaijan was quickly making progress. Um, it's also the result of the fact that uh, the country has invested massively into its uh, military capabilities over uh, it's, it's the last been preparing years. For the, it's been preparing for this war. 
we don't know whether it has been preparing for this war for a long time, but definitely uh, it was a very humiliating defeat for Azerbaijan, the first war in the 90s. So ever since, and basically using its oil resources um, and uh, like a lot of wealth uh, it has accumulated over the years. So lots of this money actually went into building this uh, military infrastructure capabilities and investing into the army so that one day perhaps in the future it can play a key role in regaining the the territories but we don't know when exactly they started preparing so um, unlike in the first war of the 90s uh, this time uh, turkey uh, gave a very explicit and vocal support to azerbaijan and it definitely uh, boosted the morale of the Azerbaijani army. Uh, so as I mentioned very quickly, they started moving forward, uh, regaining control over uh, many regions, many, many uh, villages in the regions. And uh, basically the breakthrough point was when uh, they got Shusha over the weekend. Last weekend, it was um, uh, basically, I think on Sunday when the news broke that Azerbaijan uh, took control over Shusha. And Shusha uh, is a town that is located only 10 kilometers, maybe six miles, uh, from Stepanakert, the capital of the uh, Nagorno-Karabakh um, uh, area. And interestingly enough, also Shusha is, uh, as I mentioned before, it's in a way considered um, very precious for both sides, for both Armenia and Azerbaijan. But before the war, it carries it like actually, it carries like cultural significance for both sides. Absolutely. It's actually called the Jerusalem of um, of Nagorno-Karabakh. And so it carries a historic, it, ca it carries a symbolic meaning, but it also carried a strategic meaning. So uh, basically at that point, Nikol Pashinyan, the prime minister of Armenia, uh, understood th that uh, this is it. This is it. Armenians were losing and uh, the Azerbaijani army was very just around the corner from basically uh, taking Stepanakert. And it was at this point that the Armenian prime minister accepted a Russian uh, cessation of hostilities agreement. Right. Can you just explain broadly what is included in that agreement? What's happening now? We're just speaking a few days, I should say, after this mm -hmm. agreement has been reached. Uh, so what were the terms of that cessation of hostilities? Right. So um, basically, uh, the agreement uh, has nine points. And one of the most important, of course, um, the most important point is that it ends uh, the hostilities and it ends the military operations. Um, so, uh, so, so basically, this is this is significance. But one of the, uh, I would say, controversial uh, points of the agreement is the introduction of the Russian peacekeepers to the region. So uh, nine, nine. Uh, so exactly nineteen. Uh, uh, well, my God, one thousand nine hundred nine hundred and sixty Russian soldiers uh, will be arriving to Nagorno-Karabakh very soon. Actually, already twenty-four hours after uh, signing of the agreement, uh, the first contingent of uh, Russian. Uh, peacekeepers uh, arrived um, to the Lachin Corridor, one of the strategic uh, places uh, in Karabakh. So, um, you know, the, the introduction of, of the peacekeepers, uh, it's 
in a way, a little bit of a bitter pill to uh, swallow for Azerbaijan. Um, Azerbaijan won the war. However, like they don't want Russian troops on their soil. No, definitely. Azerbaijan doesn't want any Russian troops on its soil. Uh, basically, they fought very hard in 1994 not to have any Russians on its soil. Um, it, also, before signing the ceasefire, I think it was 1993, shortly after gaining its independence, maybe two years after gaining its independence, they managed to get rid of all Russian troops from uh, from the territory of Azerbaijan. And now, 27 years later... Russians are back. Um, for- yeah, this time they're they're enforcing a line of control that heavily favors Azerbaijan. Uh, absolutely, but uh, we also we also know the realities. I mean, uh, it's it's they're they're supposed to stay there for five years, uh, and their mandate will be renewed unless the two sides actually voice some objections. However, we know the, the realities. Uh, look at what is happening in the break, breakaway Republic of Transnistria that belongs to Moldova. I mean, once they enter, they've never left. It's the same with South Ossetia or Abkhazia uh, in, in Georgia. So, of course, there's a risk that they will be staying there for much longer uh, than needed and expected. And another controversial uh, question is whether actually Russia has ever played uh, the real role of a peacekeeper uh, anywhere. Um, So um, even though Azerbaijan actually uh, is definitely um, an ally in a way of Russia, but Russia is in a military agreement with Armenia. So... um, this is not boding well uh, for the long-term uh, future of the country. Actually, already the Azerbaijani opposition is saying that uh, this uh, provision uh, in the ceasefire uh, potentially threatens the sovereignty of Azerbaijan and introduces an occupying force. This is the the wording they're using. Um, even though they're very happy, the whole Azerbaijan is celebrating uh, the fact that uh, finally, refugees will be able to go home. However, uh, this small side effect of Russian peacekeepers will be quite uh, difficult uh, to accept uh, for many. Meanwhile, over in Yerevan, Armenia, uh, they are you know, profoundly upset over this agreement. I saw the video, I'm sure many viewers, listeners of, of the show might have seen this kind of viral video now of protesters storming the parliament, hurling objects and bottles and and the like at at parliamentarians shortly after the prime minister announced the cessation of hostilities that he would accept this ceasefire agreement. Uh, He seems uh, not much longer for the job. Can you describe what impact that this agreement is having in, in Armenia today? It's it's devastating for Armenia. Um, on the other hand, uh, I mean, definitely there has been no other way uh, for the country, as uh, Pashinyan mentioned. It was the only possible and the best solution at that moment. Armenia basically lost a war. And uh, in a way, as I said, it reversed uh, when it comes to the roles with Azerbaijan. So right now it's Armenia that is the victim. And it's very important for Azerbaijan not to repeat uh, the mistakes of Armenia uh, when basically all ethnic Azerbaijanis were uh, had been driven out from the region and, and for years were not able to access the territory. So, of course, Azerbaijan now has to really uh, make sure that there are provisions uh, for the Armenians to stay so, so that uh, both sides can live by, side by side. But this is a complicated conversation. We can 
probably go back to it. You were asking about uh, the uh, the moods in Armenia. Well, um, basically, it, it would be very difficult. Um, I don't see basically much chances for Nikol Pashinyan to stay in power, um, even though what Armenians right now need is a national unity and some kind of calm to basically um, help negotiate uh, the the best uh, basically possible solutions for themselves, because this ceasefire agreement is not really uh, stating everything that should be stated yet. For example, it completely omits the status of the Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, this is the most important point, um, one of the most important points, what will be the future of Nagorno-Karabakh? Will it have a broad autonomy? Uh, Will it be under the uh, complete control uh, of uh, Azerbaijan without any autonomy? Um, Will actually, what will be the provisions for Armenians to stay? How uh, the Azerbaijanis uh, will be able to go back? Uh, What about the property issues? Uh, So there's a lot of unresolved questions. And uh, definitely right now, Armenians uh, need to think about the new realities. The status quo that has been in place for 26 years have been completely shattered. Yeah, I mean, this is a ceasefire agreement. It's not a peace agreement. Exactly. This is a ceasefire agreement. So lots of... uh, So basically, the the agreement uh, seizes... Uh, the hostilities. However, there's a whole political process that has to be still yet introduced uh, to resolve so, the questions. So, I mean, and that brings me to to a point that I wanted to emphasize that that you've already made, which is uh, the somewhat irrelevance of the Minsk group that you referenced earlier, specifically the Americans and, and the French, who are the two key players on, in that Minsk group, and the complete relevance, overwhelming relevance of, of the Russians in settling this dispute. They are, it seems now, the only real relevant player, both on the ground, but also diplomatically. The whole ceasefire agreement uh, definitely uh, reasserts uh, Russia's position in the region. It strengthens Turkey. In a way, it brings a new player to the region, which is Turkey. And at the same time, it sidelines uh, the Minsk group that for years has been in charge of negotiating a settlement of the conflict. Um, However, contrary to many analysts uh, who are claiming that uh, the Minsk group has lost its relevance, I would say it it does not necessarily, like the the current ceasefire brokered by Russia does not necessarily mean that there's no role for the West to play. Uh, We have very good news that Joe Biden uh, will be the next uh, president of the United States, and hopefully uh, he will play a more active role uh, in the region uh, compared to Donald Trump. Also, there will be a a lot of needs for the international community uh, to help uh, Russia on the ground. Um, actually, the, right before right before we started talking, the uh, crisis group issued um, a very interesting um, set of recommendations uh, in an article uh, saying that uh, basically what we need right now in Nagorno-Karabakh is a broad international mandate. Uh, so basically, there will be a lot of room for the men's group to ensure mediation, to ensure uh, basically safe um, resettlement uh, of the people. And uh, and definitely, there will be a lot of opportunities for uh, negotiating 
this political and security provisions we've been we've been talking about. Um, I don't think Russia alone will be able to do this, even though uh, obviously uh, it's it plays a very important role. And um, well, future will future will tell. But I'm 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 actually quite um, quite worried that just because we, we had the, the ceasefire, but. It, we will have to wait for many years probably before this conflict has been resolved for good. I think it's also very important to, um, for the future to think about peace building activities because for years um, peace building has been completely forgotten in relation to this conflict. It has to do with the objection from the side of Azerbaijan that for years had been basically blocking any contact uh, uh, with Armenians and was definitely discouraging uh, any kind of uh, peace building between the two sides. But now is the moment to return to thinking about uh, how to bring the two peoples together because we may find a political solution uh, to this conflict, but it will still be up to the people at the end of the day to start trusting one another and it won't come automatically uh thank you thank you so much for your time anna that was very helpful sure thank you my pleasure so after we concluded this interview anna emailed me uh, requesting to make just three quick additional points uh, that she wanted to emphasize uh, and so she sent me this brief audio file which i will play for you now the ceasefire agreement consolidates uh, Russia's position in the region as the kingmaker and the main mediation force. Unfortunately, it is hard to expect the Kremlin to play the role of a fair broker. Uh, for years, Russia has sold weapons to both sides, and the presence of nearly 2,000 Russian soldiers in the region may further fuel tensions rather than ease them. Uh, second point, uh, the lost war is a big national tragedy for Armenia. But the country has to face the reality. On the domestic front, the defeat will most likely append the political scene in Yerevan and reverse some positive results of the 2018 revolution. In Karabakh and adjacent regions, it's immensely important for Azerbaijan to protect Armenian cultural heritage and guarantee safety of Armenian civilians by enabling both nations uh, to live uh, side by side and not repeating the scenarios from the first war when hundreds of thousands of people had been forced uh, to flee their homes. And the third point, uh, the ceasefire agreement envisions an economic opening. After 30 years of frozen transportation routes and no trade, uh, this new geopolitical reality is a huge opportunity for the entire region. All right. Once again, big thank you to Anna and thank you all for listening. As always, please do feel free to reach out to me if there's anything on your mind. You can hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Bye.